Okay, good morning, church. It's good to hear you. Can you all hear me okay? Yes. I, I didn't hear you talk back. Can you hear me okay? Yes. All right, you'll understand my insecurity. Last service, the whole sermon, uh, my mic wasn't working. And so uh, to illustrate just the way we're going to open, God didn't need my mic and my voice. And apparently a lot of people just saw me moving and that was enough. So I want to make sure you can hear me uh, this morning. Now, it is great to have the video. A lot of that uh, Israel team's back. And more than this, we're excited to continue to worship by looking at God's word. If you have your bulletin, we're going to be reading the end of Acts 28. Uh, and a verse from 2 Timothy. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Uh, we're going to be looking at that. But this is Stewardship Sunday, and it's an annual renewal for us as Christians uh, where we have the opportunity to respond to God's grace by bringing into his storehouse his tithes and, and our offerings. It, it is a response because, as we talked about last week, God's generosity, God's covenant love is always the beginning of our own giving. In fact, our whole Christian faith, all that we do, begins with God. In view of his mercy, we respond and we are transformed. We, we talked about how it's the gospel and the gospel alone that, that gives us ground from which gratitude and, and generosity are shown. And God's glory grows, right? And the, the contrast of the gospel we discussed was religion. Self-focused, self-righteous performance. That is transactional in its highest place in our relationship with God. Where, whereby we really believe that if we're good or we give or we have works, that somehow that obligates God to give us some sort of reciprocal response. That's not the point. God is not interested in transaction. He's interested in transformation, whereby the gospel of Jesus Christ changes our hearts and makes us new, moves us from being enemies of God, aliens outside of God's family, brought in by his grace to be his children, that we might know his love and imitate him by walking in love. In this provides a context for all that we do in celebrating being a witness through our generosity. We are participating in what God has already started and what God is already doing. That is showing his love and expanding his glory. If you have any family traditions that you pass down or, or if you like to cook uh, and you pass down recipes or cooking opportunities from to your children or your children's children, then you understand the power of allowing participation without the demand of perfection, right? It's tamale season in San Antonio, and I sure am one that says, I love generational tamale excellence. Every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, give me some of that good stuff. You know what I mean? I was reminded of that in our session meeting, the power of process uh, we, we were discussing a, a book, uh, Gospel Leadership. It's a, it's a privilege to be a part of, of a group of officers that truly want to allow the gospel to transform our leadership and our love. Uh, but one of our elders uh, shared a story that really impacted her that represents the kind of context that we come to Stewardship Sunday. 
in making cookies with her boys, uh, in pushing forward, uh, trying to get the product of cookies done. She had this moment of realization, I can only imagine, trying to corral two young boys to cooking, that, that it wasn't necessarily about the product of the cookies that mattered, but the process of making cookies with your children as a family. If we look at making sweet cookies or making a Thanksgiving meal, only concerned about the product, the cleanliness, and, and everything going well, if we look at making sweets like it's some sort of sweatshop, right? Give me more sweets. I want more cookies now. Let's get them out of here. Let's move them. We miss the point, don't we? The opportunity is process. That everyone gets to participate. And I tell you one thing, this mama did not need her boys to help her with cookies, but she loved it. She embraced the mess. She embraced the process. And together, they cooked some sweets and celebrated the aroma of cookies. This is stewardship. That we have a heavenly father who loves us. He doesn't need your money. Did you hear me? God doesn't need your cash. He doesn't need your currency. He doesn't need your crypto. God is the owner of all the wealth in the world and he gives it to people. That's what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And in Haggai chapter 2, it says that he owns all the silver and the gold in the world. It's all his. So when we respond to his grace through stewardship, at best, we are just participating in his recipe that the sweetness of the love of God can go everywhere through Jesus Christ and his body. And that the aroma of Christ can, can come out. You see, God is the initiator, the recipe maker, the creator. He's the one that allows us to participate in coming to this table, which is what we will do at the end. Just a precursor. We're going to end by bringing this forward. I hope you've looked at it, prayed about it, and considered what a response might be to God's grace. This is, uh, if you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, a member of this church, it's an opportunity to, to remind ourselves, to refocus, to to uh, double down on our discipline of worshiping God with his tithes and our offerings by making an annual commitment. If you're a guest with us today, uh, we don't want you to feel pressure uh, to do this. If you're not a Christian, we do not want you to approach an opportunity to come forward as if you're going to give something to God so that he's obligated to give you something. It's not how he works. He has already given us everything in Christ. And we have the opportunity to know the richness of his love. That though he was rich, says Paul in our passage we looked at last week, he became poor for our sake so that we could become rich in love and in grace. And we respond to his grace. And we're going to do that at the end of the service. I also want you to note that there's opportunities for us to commit to uh, giving our whole selves to the Lord first and in the work, his work in and through the church. So please take time to prayerfully consider this if you have not. And before we go to the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of the word and pray. Will you pray with me? Will you pray with me? Yes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We are your people. We ask for your spirit. As we come to your word, we confess that oftentimes, Lord, we act like you need us. We confess that we too often operate out of self-centered and self-righteous ways. And we don't want to be robbed of the fun and the freedom that it is to participate 
in the recipe of showing your love and sharing your light to the world. Lord, open our eyes to your love and the power of your salvation, the purposes that you have for us. And I ask, Lord, that truly we would worship you with all of our lives, our time, talent, and treasure. Speak to us now, Lord, that we might know you more fully and serve you more faithfully and fruitfully, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Please join me in reading Acts chapter 28 uh, and then 2 Timothy chapter 2. Print it in your bulletin or in your pew Bibles. Therefore, let it be known to you, says Paul, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Please join me in this call and response. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. How can God's word and work, his kingdom go forward when God's people are in problematic places? Well, the first thing we're going to see by looking at verse 28 is that God is the one that sends salvation. At the end of Paul's uh, proclamation that concludes this book, he says this in verse 28, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent. God is the one that sends salvation. God is the one that gets glory from salvation. And in the same way that families cook and allow kids and kids of kids to participate for the joy of the process, God is pleased to use his people in the sending of his salvation. Now, uh, we see this very clearly all through Scripture. In the fullness of, of what Paul says here, that God sends his salvation to all the Gentiles, is seen in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And there we see Jesus, the Lamb who was slain on the throne, and it, John sees from Patmos. He sees every tribe, every tongue, and every nation gathered around the throne of the Lamb, singing salvation belongs to our God. It belongs to him because God's the one that sends salvation. And all through Scripture, we see that this is true. No place more clearly than the prophet of Jonah. Now, if you know Jonah, Jonah's the prophet that was swallowed by the big fish. And we learn when we read the story of Jonah that sometimes God takes us to the depths of life so that he can reveal the height of his love. It's our loving Heavenly Father that uses our circumstances to refocus our heart and oftentimes recommission us for his purposes, that he's ordained much like he did with Jonah. You know the story, God called Jonah to, to be a prophet to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And Jonah demonstrated his racist heart. How in the world could the gospel be for them? His political idolatry. I'm not going to preach to anybody that's not Israel. His socioeconomic snobbery and his self-righteousness. Because when God called him to go preach to Nineveh, Jonah went in the opposite direction. 
He refused to go preach to his enemies. He refused to go preach to people who were persecuting Israel and a threat to the, the, the national identity of who they, his people were. And so the story goes, you can read it, it's only four chapters. It'll take you about 21 and a half minutes. If you want to read it this afternoon, it's worth it. But you'll read that as he's going the opposite direction, God's grace takes him and he's thrown off of a boat into a sea. And if you read chapter two, it's actually a prayer from the prophet from inside the belly of a big fish. And verse one says that from the depths of the sea, I cry out to you. And verse two reveals from the heights of heaven, God hears. And in his miraculous sovereign grace, God does not disregard the prophet, remove him for his rebellion and place, replace him with someone else. God did not need Jonah to go to Assyria, but he was pleased to use him. Jesus himself said that if his disciples don't say anything, he can make witnesses come from the rocks. You remember that? He didn't need Jonah, but he was pleased to use him. Because God's the one that sends salvation. And in fact, it's important to pour out Jonah in this scenario because in verse 6, we see him celebrating God's faithfulness for rescuing him while inside of a fish. That is so gross and nasty. I don't even want to start thinking about it. Somehow he's singing praises of the Lord from that slimy place. And when you get to the end of his prayer, it crescendos, it climaxes with this phrase. Salvation belongs to the, God, to the Lord. God is the one that sends salvation. And Jonah recognizes that his relationship isn't transactional, but transformational, and he is made into a faithful prophet, even though he still struggles in sanctification, we see by the end of the book. But the point is clear. In Jonah's life and all through Scripture, salvation belongs to God. God sends salvation. We see it in Psalm 37. We see it all through, all the way back to Genesis 3.15. When God made a promise in the garden that the seed and offspring of the woman would come and bring salvation, crushing the head of the serpent and giving resurrection, hope, and life to all who believe. God sends salvation and there's nothing that can stop him. And we learn in the New Testament that reinforcing reality that God is pleased to use his people to do so. When Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 10, he talks about uh, people hearing and believing the good news. That God is pleased to use people like you, like me, to take good news to people who have not heard. In fact, he says, how can they believe if they do not hear? How can they hear unless someone is sent? And how will be, they be sent unless they hear the preaching? And in fact, Paul in Romans 10 quotes the prophet Nahum. I mean, who's quoting Nahum? The apostle Paul. And what's his point? His point, he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So God's not only pleased to use his people to take his salvation forward, but he makes our feet beautiful. Now, if you've ever seen me in the summertime with sandals on, you know that's a pretty impossible task to make my feet beautiful. But somehow God does that because he's pleased to use you. He wants to use you. 
to bring his salvation. And he's the author of it and the one who sends it. And you say, Mitchell, you don't know me. You don't know my circumstances. You don't know my past. God can't use me. I say, hold on. Before you come to a concrete conviction with that conclusion, you need to hear the rest of what Paul says. And what Luke says is he encompasses the whole, the whole climax of the book of Acts. It's right here. It's unbelievable. Not only does God send salvation, but the next point is this. Your circumstances cannot stop it. In fact, I'm going to tell you, they always promote it. Always. Paul, you will see in verse 30, he was in prison two whole years. And we saw in the second Timothy passage that he was suffering for the name of Christ. He was in chains. And Luke adds that he was there at his own expense. And I would say even by his own choice. Now you say, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, Paul faithfully served Jesus. He was persecuted. He was shipwrecked. He, he almost died. He, he went on several missionary journeys. And he was, in plant, he was in want and need and starvation. And he planted a lot of churches. I mean, shouldn't someone like that have a real comfortable life? I mean, shouldn't somebody like that be sitting on the shores of, of the Mediterranean Sea and just sipping on some, like, coconut milk or something? No. Because when we are a witness for Christ, we don't do so to guarantee some sort of personal comfort and prosperity. That's a transactional religious understanding of God. We follow a suffering servant and we serve him at great personal cost because that is how he served us, giving everything in our place. So we see reinforced where Paul is, the, the reality of what we studied in Acts 16, that our problems, our pain points, the prisons that we're in in life, those are the very places, I'm going to say, the platforms that God has given you for proclamation. Rather than seeing our pain and our problems as, as some sort of self-justification that God's not good, he doesn't really love me, the gospel says, no, no. God is pleased to give you those as a platform to proclaim his unchanging good character. In the places of death, we proclaim life. We grieve with him. And we grieve with hope knowing that he says, I'm the resurrection and life. In places of our, of our weaknesses, we say, his grace is sufficient. This is where his power is made perfect. This is the normal paradigm in Acts, and it's a normal pattern all throughout God's word in history. In chapter 4, when we started this series with a bold witness, we looked at the disciples in chapter 4, where they were actually arrested for their faith and beat, and it says that they rejoiced, <laughs> they rejoiced with the honor of being persecuted in the name of Jesus. And as we continue to read through, the gospel, uh, through Acts, we see in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says that they were scattered because of persecution. And they continued to preach the word. I mean, that's how the word went out, through persecution. And then, 8.4, it says that the whole city rejoiced. The persecution, the imprisonment, was a platform for the proclamation of the gospel. All through Acts. We see it in Acts chapter 10, when there's cultures in conflict. And we would discover the power of the unity that comes in the gospel. 
when Cornelius and his family come to faith that truly there's no barbarian or Scythian, no Gentile or Jew. We're all one in Christ. And we see it, uh, we already saw it in Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas were in prison. And this is how the book ends. It's a normal paradigm in Acts and it's a normal pattern throughout history. I don't have to go far to remind you that Joseph experienced the pain of being sold into slavery, sent to prison for years before he had a proclamation in the palace of Pharaoh. God went through all that pain so that he could have a platform. I don't have to tell you about Naomi. Naomi was a widow. She lost both of her children. Because of famine, she went to another country in Moab. And it was there that she actually connected with Ruth, through whom, not only through the pain and the suffering that she experienced, But through Ruth, her grandchild was born. And that grandchild's name was Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. Through Naomi's suffering and pain, the great King David came. But, you know, some of our pain and some of our problems, like King David, are self-inflicted. David was chosen by God, a covenant representative on behalf of God's people. And he failed. Rather than going to war, King David stood on his palace and looked down over the whole city and he lusted in his heart after a woman that he saw bathing. And he abused his authority by ordering this woman coming to his chambers. He committed adultery and then he abused his authority more by making sure her husband was sent to war and died. He, he made sure he was murdered. And this David through the pain and the consequence of his own sin, the problems that it caused, is through whom we have the amazing proclamation of God's grace in Psalm 51. And these are the words that we concluded our prayer of confession with. Lord, restore unto us a joy of our salvation. These places of proclamation come through, all through Scripture, through the pain, the problems, the persecution and our own sinful consequences of our hearts and lives because that's how God is pleased to demonstrate his glory and his sovereign grace. Our circumstances can't change it. We could talk about all kinds of prophets and leaders all through scripture, but we'd be pretty unwise to not mention Daniel when he was uh, in Babylon. You know, him and Shadrach and Benny, uh, they had a lot of problems because they were faithful. And it was from the lion's den and from the fiery furnace through whom kings came to worship the Lord. And not only kings, but wise men. And the wise men, you can read in Daniel 4, they're the ones that saw the faith of Daniel and they wanted to know his wisdom. Where'd you get it? And generations of wise men studied where Daniel got his wisdom and they they saw that there would be a savior that would come because of a star. And those wise men are the wise men from the east that came to be the first Gentile worshipers of baby Jesus. God uses our pain, our suffering, and the proclamation of that in ways we'll never know until we get to heaven. And even then, think about how Jesus came. Jesus came 
to two teenagers that were engaged to be married and not planning to be pregnant. In total weakness, he came in a huge pain point. So much so that the king of the day killed everybody under the age of two trying to kill Jesus. And they spent their first years in exile in Egypt. And through that, the Son of God came so that he could live the perfect life, die the death we deserve to die, and rise from the grave so that all who hope in him and believe in him can not only have forgiveness of sins, but the power to begin again and through his spirit to walk in a newness of life. And that's exactly what the disciples needed in the early church because they had a lot of pain and problems from their own cowardice, their own, their own rebellion. And it wasn't until resurrected Jesus met people like Peter and other disciples who had scattered from fear and they moved from this place of fear to a place of courage. It's not the pain and the problems, the, the consequences of our sin that disqualify us from being witnesses, but in fact, it's the very thing that qualifies us. God welcomes sinners. He redeems rebellious prophets. And he refocuses and renews us to send us out for his purpose. Because our salvation never begins in our own work, but always begins with his grace. Do you believe that? You say, Mitchell, you don't know where I am right now. You don't know what I'm done. And I, you know what my response is? I don't care. You can't surprise God. His grace is so much greater than your sin. His sovereignty is so much greater than your problems. Just trust him and watch him turn your problems into a platform for a proclamation of his sovereign grace. It's sufficient. Paul was in prison and the gospel went forward unhindered. His circumstances didn't change. And we see what God's priority is for prosperity. His priority for prosperity is his salvation, his word that goes forward. This takes us to our final point. It says, he says that he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. God's kingdom goes forward without hindrance. The ESV translation actually does the Greek uh, justice. The last word in the book of Acts, Luke leaves us hanging. It just is, it's a word that means without hindrance. It just keeps going forward. That Paul can be, in a, he, he can't go anywhere geographically from prison, but somehow the gospel goes forward. And did you know that's how the New Testament ends? John, the apostle, was exiled in prison on Patmos. And he saw all the vision. And he shared it with the early church. And John stays in prison. But the proclamation, the kingdom of God, the teaching goes forward. I was reminded of, of, of what this looks like to be reoriented by uh, a story from a guy named Lord Reith. Now, this is something I read a few years ago. And it's true. In the 1920s, this guy, Lord Reith, start, from London, he started a broadcasting company called the British Broadcasting Company, the BBC. He became the first what is called the Director General. And he remained in that place for the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. And when it came to the 1960s, he had a really successful young producer. And the producer challenged Lord Reith in a meeting. 
in front of other people, he stood up and he said that the world was changing. And the BBC did not need to continue with religious programming. This young guy said that people are no longer interested in religion. The church was becoming increasingly obsolete. Lord Reith was apparently a large man, about 6'6". He stood up and he told the young man to take a seat. And he said one thing. He said, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. You see, what he's saying is that all of what we see now, all of what we prioritize by our sight is nothing compared to the unhindered, the free kingdom of God, the gospel. The headlines of this world are going to change. They're going to pass away. The news outlets of our world today will be gone tomorrow. Yet God's work will continue. How does it go forward? God buries his messengers, but his message will go through, go forward for generations till Jesus comes again. And it goes forward through the boldness of believers. Look at how Paul is described. He's he, he, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching with all boldness. This word boldness, is, it's a word that really thematically ties together our whole series, but also the entire book of Acts. The bold witness is where we started the repeated word of boldness all through Acts chapter 4. But we see it scattered throughout the whole book of Acts. And it's the only way that the commission of Jesus for disciples to to go into all the world to be his witnesses, Acts 1.8, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, that's all the Gentiles and non-Jewish nations that the, the Messiah was a light for. The only way that can happen is if Christians aren't so concerned about the current of our culture, but we can live with boldness. This word parousia means courage and confidence. In the face of danger, and the message of the gospel and the kingdom of God goes forward when Christians are bold, understanding that the persecution and the problems that come from proclaiming Christ are a blessing, says Jesus, and that the privilege to know God's love and to respond to that love is to help him cook, to create a sweet recipe. That is satisfying on the one hand is sweetness of God's love and grace, but on the other hand, it's aroma of Christ to the world. We do this by, uh, by trusting, having concrete confidence in Jesus Christ and his kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we prioritize his purpose, that is to bless the nations. What Paul says at the beginning of this section is that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. It's the grace of God that gives us an opportunity to repent, that we can return to his design for his people. When he first called Abraham, he said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the nations, all the families of the earth. That's Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. That we get to participate in that work, knowing that God doesn't need us, but he's pleased to use us. And we do this by bearing light and showing love through surprising generosity. And you say, Mitchell, what does surprising generosity look like? Well, Christians show a surprising generosity to enemies, 
Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. We show surprising generosity by even doing good to those who hate us. Christians show surprising generosity by sharing the forgiveness that God has given us through Christ. In fact, Jesus teaches us to pray that we would be forgiven our debts as we forgive our debtors. We show tremendous surprising generosity by forgiving people, even if they don't ask for it. We show surprising generosity in, in, in our response to love our neighbor. Jesus says if someone asks you for a coat, give them your cloak also. Just give them both. If he says, we go with me a mile, go with him too. The surprising generosity, it, it encompasses all of life. And even that, it, it, it encompasses our treasure. And the, the gospel goes forward through the church, to the people of God who, who respond to God's grace by giving everything for God. That's what we talked about last week when we looked at the Macedonian church. They didn't give out of their abundance. They were described as in severe affliction. And they gave more than according to their means. Not because everybody be like the Macedonian church, but because God is so extravagant in his love. And when we understand that he really did leave the riches of heaven and became poor for us so that we could be rich in love and grace and responding to that, no problem. So we come forward in responding to God's grace by giving him fully our whole lives. We give ourselves first to the Lord and then obediently as he leads us after that. We say of our time, God, enter time and space in the person of Jesus Christ, demonstrating he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Everything belongs to him, so surely our time does. We do so by understanding that, that God gave up all of his talents. You understand that, right? I mean, God it was God. Jesus was God. And he came as a baby. He gave up every one of his talents. He couldn't even clean himself. He trusted a teenage girl to wipe him. That's true. No talents. Why did he do that? So he could live the perfect life that we could never live, die the death we deserve to die, and then rise from the grave so that we could be born again and walk in a newness of life. That's why he gave up his talents. He has rights to all our talents for his kingdom. What about our testimony? Friends, I'm going to say this again. Your places of pain and your problems where you might be persecuted for your faith, that's the exact place that God wants to have a proclamation for his goodness, his glory, his love, and his forgiveness. It's the exact place. Mitchell, how do you know that? Because God himself entered into his story, his story. And Jesus went into places of pain. He went into places of imprisonment, falsely tried. He went into the place of a criminal and died, suffering more than anybody else. Why? So that God's salvation can go forward. That's the paradigm. So surely we can steward our testimony and then our treasure. It's what Scripture teaches again and again. We respond to God's grace by participating in his work of sending salvation by coming to these baskets. This isn't a sacrament. This isn't 
something that we do because, well, we got nothing else to do, right? If you're a visitor with us, I promise you we don't do this every week. In fact, this is as close as we get to our Baptist brothers and sisters walking the aisle as Presbyterians. As we prayerfully consider these cards and how we can respond to God's grace and, and just symbolically trusting him, this is our offering today. And I want to encourage you to really allow the Holy Spirit to touch your heart. You're not going to impress God. God doesn't need your cash. God doesn't need your money. But man, it sure is fun. I mean, it sure is fun. Given everything so that the world can know the sweetness of Jesus and smell the aroma of Christ. Don't settle. Don't settle for sitting on the sidelines on this one. But let's come. Let's put it all in the basket. That we might know his grace more fully and live more faithfully and fruitfully for his kingdom. Christian, you are more loved than you can even imagine. And the privilege and opportunity of being a part of God's sweetness and aroma, man, it's, it's, it's awesome. Let's do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your amazing love. I don't know why you don't remove rebellious prophets and preachers like me. But man, thank you for showing the sufficiency of your grace that your power be made perfect in our weaknesses. Lord, we celebrate that your salvation goes forward. Our circumstances can't stop it. And somehow your kingdom goes without being hindered. Lord, would you move our hearts to trust your love more? Help us to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.